Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by University of British Columbia, Okanagan campus, political science professor Jeffrey Sigalev, who's a big thinker on Canadian constitutionalism, including the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the role of the judiciary. He's recently launched a new Center for Constitutional Law and Legal Studies at UBC, which counts amongst its associated fellows, past Hub Dialogue guests, Dwight Newman and Asher Honickman. I'm grateful to speak with Jeff about the new center, its mandate and purpose, and the early reaction to its launch. Jeff, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me, Sean. Let's start with a bit of a biographical sketch for our listeners. What drew you to constitutional questions, including their underlying philosophical ideas? And what do you think that political science can contribute to our understanding of these issues that lawyers or legal scholars can't? Well, the answer to the first question is that I didn't, I probably didn't think about constitutionalism too much for the first part of my uh, education. I was really interested in Aristotle and Plato and ancient Greek political philosophy and theory. But then in grad school, I started to become uh, fascinated by questions of public law and how they related to fundamental questions about political theory. And um, I was particularly drawn or maybe upset by several Canadian Supreme Court decisions I read in, um, in graduate school. I remember reading the Sauvet prisoners enfranchisement case where Justin McLaughlin says that the right to uh, the obligation to obey the law flows directly from the right to vote. So prisoners that were disenfranchised uh, prior to that decision uh, didn't have to obey the law, apparently, on that logic. And uh, seeing this kind of amateur political theory at work in our uh, highest court just drove me bananas and made me want to write about it. So I got really into it that way. and. Um, and I'm still interested in Aristotle and Plato. I think they have a lot of relevance to questions about public law. Um, but that's the short story about how I got uh, kind of obsessively interested in Canadian constitutionalism and constitutional theory. Uh, I think that political science as a, as a discipline is really um, ha- has a lot to offer questions about Canadian public law and comparative political uh, and com- comparative constitutionalism because it it draws on two different, there's two different strands, right? There's one strand that is the tradition of political theory within it, where it has deep, it has a deep tradition of thinking about what it means to constrain power and what it means to, um, what rights are, what their basis is in social contract theory, the kinds of things at stake in that kind of prisoner disenfranchisement case, like that I'm talking about, just called Sauvé. Um, and on the other hand, uh, and so that's, that stuff's really important for lawyers and judges and 
and legal scholars interested in this stuff, but political scientists have a special uh, set of insights into those kinds of questions and, and inhabit a tradition with lots of, uh, lots of resources that way. But on the other hand, empirical political science can also help us answer some questions like what's actually going on, right? So I'm less in that uh, tradition, but increasingly see its value. And the more um, I, I continue to work on some of my own stuff on dialogue, the more I draw and try to code, do coding and draw on some of the empirical resources we have in political scientists and talk to my colleagues who have more expertise in that area. Because political scientists can actually tell you like, what's actually going on sometimes when it comes to like, how many times does the court do this kind of thing? How many times, times does, uh, does the parliament respond and why? What political dynamics help explain the what's actually happening here? And lawyers kind of lose sight of that sometimes. Uh, they can lose sight of the fact that there's, it's not all that what the court has said is actually what's going, what's, what's, the, what's at stake in this case isn't necessarily explaining all the dynamics of what's, what actually explains what's happening. That's a really rich answer, Jeff, in which you mentioned the issue of dialogue. Uh, let me put that to you directly. Your doctoral research at Princeton was on what you describe as, quote, a conversational dialogue between the executive, legislative, and judicial branches about the constitutional limitations and powers of government. You write in footnote 124 of your dissertation that, quote, Every constitutional theory should ideally be explicable in terms one's grandma can understand. So pretend your grandma is listening. What do you mean by the metaphor of dialogue and what's its significance? Oh, gosh. Well, that footnote, as you, uh, I think, probably notice, undermines uh, everything else I've ever written because I'm not sure I can explain things well enough for my grandma to understand. But I do believe that that's true. You need to be able to say things clearly. And my understanding of what dialogue is, so my interest in dialogue comes from the fact that the Canadian Supreme Court at one point said that it was engaged in a dialogue with the legislature in several really prominent decisions about Charter of Rights and Freedoms cases, right? Um, and this, the, the dialogue metaphor is also used in the United States. It's actually used a little older in older literature in the U.S. about the relationship between Congress and the U.S. Supreme Court. And some of the some of that that literature about dialogue in the American context is being picked up again as people start to criticize the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, it was also picked up in New Zealand and in the U.K., where there are statutory bills of rights that have kind of somewhat altered the tradition of parliamentary supremacy in those in those contexts. I mean, there's still Parliament is still formally supreme in both of the contexts, but the courts play a, a bigger role. And dialogue was used to think about the relationship between courts and legislatures there. Um, I think my, my, my bottom, my elevator, like, you know, explain this to my grandma or someone who, uh, who I'm, my job is to, to, to say this very clearly, who's maybe not a political scientist or a legal scholar, is to say that dialogue is sometimes used by these courts to say that they're in a conversation with the legislature about certain fundamental constitutional questions and particular rights questions, right? And often that conversation is used as an excuse for courts to be more aggressive, right? Courts can be more aggressive about a certain rights question because it's always up to the legislature to respond. And the, and the courts sort of make this feint that they'll say, well, we'll be really aggressive here, but we'll, we'll be open to legislatures responding. And now that's all, not always the case. Sometimes they have used dialogue to then say that a response is okay that a legislature's response to their 
decision in a way they find all right. But it's usually within the narrow confines of what they've said was okay before. They don't usually grant legislatures a lot of autonomy in having a say about what rights mean. Um, they're much more likely to just defer first order to whatever they think um, is a reasonable uh, legislative view about rights, rather than let the legislatures reply to their statement and defy in any way their statement about what rights mean. Um, and my 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 insight into this thing, maybe my 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 argument is that a lot of the time we um, characterize legislatures as not caring about rights very much. We characterize legislatures as dominated by policy interests and whatnot. Um, and what I noticed in the dialogue literature was that there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of denigrating uh, legislative ability to actually take rights questions seriously, even as the dialogue metaphor sort of raises the bar for the legislature, right? It sort of says, well, legislatures are here, they get a role in saying what rights mean, and we're going to respect that when they fulfill that. But much of the theory does not, um, is, isn't sufficiently critical and doesn't raise the bar enough on what dialogue demands of courts too, right? I agree with some of those, those thick claims that legislatures sometimes can ignore rights questions. They can, they can be, they can disregard rights claims. But I noticed that in a lot of the, uh, judicial decisions about some fundamental rights questions, courts just are reasoning about whether or not rights are justifiably violated. And that seems to me to be or proportionately violated. And in particular, in our rights jurisprudence, that's a central concept. And to me, if you are convinced that rights are just justifiably or unjustifiably violated, and that's the main question, that doesn't seem like a very legal question. That's a very policy-oriented question, right? That seems like something the legislature might have a better answer about. Um, I don't think that's right, though. I don't think that rights questions should always be focused on justifiably violating rights. I think this should be we should be really keyed in on different concepts of what's at stake of, of what this right is. And the conversation should focus on that. And in this, I really draw a lot and I'm influenced a lot by my, by my, uh, by senior scholars and mentors, um, Gregoire Weber and, uh, Justice Bradley Miller and Justice Huscroft, um, who've written a lot about this and were really keyed in on this, uh, before it was cool, maybe. Um, I don't know if it's cool. Uh, and they really focused in on that problem that we have with proportionality analysis. And what I did was I hooked that up to the dialogue literature and said, okay, well, how is this approach to rights? How is focusing on the justified violation of rights maybe distorting the kind of dialogue we want? Um, which ultimately isn't, a, isn't, um, what, and ultimately I, my, my, my basic answer is that dialogue could be a great thing if legislatures and courts are keyed in on saying something and disagreeing reasonably about the scope of rights. But what we have is not even the courts engaging in that kind of conversation. So when we uh, get mad at legislatures for not taking their responsibilities seriously, we're sort of asymmetrically um, distributing our scorn. We should be we should be a little more skeptical about all the branches, in my view. That's a big question with lots of big ideas embedded in it. For listeners interested in the question of proportionality. I might recommend a previous Hub Dialogues episode with Dwight Newman when we talked about Section 1 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the evolution of the so-called Oaks test used by the Canadian judiciary to make those judgments about issues of proportionality. Uh, Jeff, I want to put a related question to you. How much is your conception of a dialogue contingent on particular constitutional and political conditions? That is to say, 
Is the dialogue between the legislative and judicial branches the same in Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand? Or do these country institutions and constitutional orders cause the dialogue to take different shapes and purposes? That's a great question. I think that it, it, that the actual institutional context and the different arrangements we have must force us to distinguish what we should expect in terms of dialogue in each of these contexts. So in Canada, we have a unique system where the, the, the section 33 of the Canadian Charter allows laws to be enacted, notwithstanding, um, certain provisions of the charter, which ultimately allows, uh, uh, legislatures to enact laws, notwithstanding certain judicial decisions about fun- certain fundamental rights, right? Um, so it formally recognizes a kind of coordinate role for legislatures in specifying rights about fundamental constitutional rights, right? In the United States, there's no formal, there's no notwithstanding clause. Um, the judiciary um, has the power of judicial review that I think there's a strong argument it was was always uh, was always going to be part of the American story. I don't think it was necessarily going to be part of the American story the way it is it has evolved and has politically been the supremacy of the American judiciary judiciary has been um, judicially and politically constructed um, over time. And the dialogue that will exist there will be distinct, not only because there's no notwithstanding clause, but also because um, the American Constitution and Amendments process is different. The American history is just different. And the American separation of powers is different, right? It's not dialogue between an executive directed parliament. You know, parliament is separate from the government and our, there is a separation of powers in Canada. The American context is different because it, it is even more separated and, and the president and the executive has a direct, distinct electoral mandate from the Congress. And so it's a trialogue, if you will, there. It's a very um, uh, clearly distinguished set of dialogues between these different branches. So it's going to look different for that reason. Um, although overall, broadly speaking, you know, you do see, you, you do, you do see the case being made for dialogue between the two branches about fundamental constitutional issues where those constitutional provisions, where constitutional questions and provisions are vague enough. And James Madison actually, in, in some of his early writings, um, anticipated this idea that it would be necessary for the political branches to help construct indeterminate parts of the Constitution. And I think that his thinking about that, you know, he's the president that invaded Canada, but he, uh, he, he has something to offer us in thinking about that idea and grounding that idea that in a, in a constitution with an entrenched constitutional order, you're going to need, um, you're going to need the, the elected branches to have some say and input in constructing the nature of the constitution. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he opposed the, uh, the national bank, um, and then eventually conceded that it was a legitimate constitutional construction afterwards, um, after he became president and became a political actor with his own, um, his own mandate, right? In the New Zealand and UK context, dialogue is going to look a lot different because there are dialogues about statutory rights that parliament in both contexts is ultimately responsible for. Parliament could, could repeal the Bill of Rights on its own in both those contexts, right? So the dialogue is taking place sort of between the legislature and the courts with the legislature holding, um, an ultimate veto. But that doesn't mean that there's not some really interesting power dynamics going on there between the two institutions. Um, 
there's some writers who claim that in the UK and New Zealand context, dialogue is even more dangerous and can get more dangerous because it tempts the judiciary to use its power to reinterpret laws in a way that's kind of like serious lawmaking, um, but but sort of under the guise of of just interpreting whatever Parliament's intended here, right? Um, and there's a also there's a different set of considerations there, and I'm sort of probably getting too far afield now, but that's that sort of gives you a basic sketch of how it can play out in all these different contexts. You mentioned the notwithstanding clause. Let me uh, follow up with a specific question about it. You wrote in a 2015 National Post op-ed that, quote, the use of the override might then engender actual dialogue between government and court, each interpreting the Constitution with the prospective response of the other branch in mind. Do you want to explain what you mean? How can the use of the notwithstanding clause restore a two-way conversation between the legislature and the judiciary? And why does it need restoring? What I think I was getting at there is, is that the notwithstanding clause is one way in which legislatures actually can directly contradict a judicial decision about a charter right, right? It's one, one, one tool where when the legislature goes to it, it can actually, it can apply a law, notwithstanding what the courts have said about the charter provision in question, right? So on a lot of these other dialogue contexts, we just see legislatures responding in ways where courts, maybe the dissent in a, in a judicial decision has said, well, you could do this and that would be more constitutional. And the legislature will respond along the lines of what the dissent has, has sort of hinted could be constitutional. And then the courts might uphold that, right? But that's already, that's still going by, you know, that's still the legislature singing the, the judiciary song at the end of the day. And the notwithstanding clause lets the, lets the legislature make the judiciary sing its song, uh, essentially. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in any, um, in any healthy relationship, uh, you need two sides. And I promised my wife I wouldn't do analogies like this or make jokes like this. But yeah, you, you know what I'm getting at here. You need, you need to, you need to be able to have some say that's different. It can't just be the court's way or the highway all the time. And I'm not saying that the court just gets its way and is like a heroic sort of, uh, institution that has a monopoly on power in our system. I think that the court's ability to have its way on certain issues is itself enabled by other systemic problems in our system too. And that's important to keep in mind. And what the notwithstanding clause does in a more, um, a more, um, high profile and more responsible uses of it, the promise of that is that it, it not only levels the plan, not only lets the judiciary sing the legislative song sometimes, but it also highlights for us as citizens that legislatures, it makes us think maybe that we need to raise the bar on the legislature and, and actually think that it shouldn't just be doing whatever the court should be doing, whatever the courts say is the rights question. It should maybe take responsibility independently um, for some of these rights questions. Um, and that in turn might make the judiciary a bit more, um, a bit more reflective and thoughtful and um, more constructive in how it approaches rights. I want to move in a, a different direction now. I, I mentioned that you got your PhD at Princeton, where conservative scholar Robert George has established himself as the gold st standard of conservative engagement in the university. His scholarly temperament, deep intellect, and inherent decency has enabled him to navigate the choppy waters of modern academia and become something of a progenitor of a new generation of conservative scholars. 
Do you want to talk a bit about Professor George and his legacy, including what, if any, lessons that young conservatives who would like to pursue an academic career may draw from his example? Well, I'm a huge uh, admirer of Robbie George and think that he is probably one of one of the most, if not the most influential conservative academic. He might be one of the most cons- most influential academics in the United States right now, I'd say. And I admire him because he's able to be true to his own beliefs and ideas about things while still engaging very constructively with people who disagree with him all the way down on really, really fundamental things. And also, um, he's built the James Madison program at Princeton, which is a um, amazing um, scholarly institution within within Princeton. It's an institute um, that is uh, that fosters, it brings in scholars from all different kinds of conservative perspectives, libertarians, more, more social conservatives, uh, political theorists, economists, all different people from all kinds of different disciplines. Um, and I mean, my, my friend told me that this year there's a fellow there who studies cab drivers, Pakistani cab drivers in London and, um, and their, and their social and their views on different kinds of social issues. And, uh, I mean, this guy was canceled or something like that in the, in the anthropology world. And now he's there and Robbie brought him there, right? That's kind of an amazing thing. And, you know, if you're if you're lucky enough to be a grad student there, you're just surrounded by all these people coming in, and you can't help but be influenced and really interested in their in their views, even if they're not your views, you know. Um, and so, but Robbie's built that, and that is an amazing institution. And anyone interested in fostering more heterodox, heterodox conversations, where we actually have right of center ish perspectives represented and engaged with in academic conversations needs to pay attention to him and needs to pay attention to what he's doing. And, um, and I would say that his ability to, to engage with someone like Cornell West, who is a uh, very left of center on many, on many different issues. Um, but is they're good friends. I, um, and as far as I know, they still are going on speaking tours and stuff together and, and modeling for me, what academic, uh, engagement really is about, which is, researching interesting tough questions in society in ways that that actually involve engaging and listening to the other side and involves dialogue right and it involves actually hearing different perspectives on things not just what you want to hear and i'm afraid that the canadian academy overall has drifted in a way that really has has seen a diminishing the the i think our friend ben woodfinden wrote the other day that the conservative is now an endangered species in the canadian academy and i'm afraid that's true right and hopefully young Canadian academics, whatever their stripe is, whatever their political stripes are, will recognize that and want to rectify it by having people with really different perspectives on these issues involved in the academy and, and bringing them in. And Robbie stands as a kind of inspiration for that. That's what I think. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. The hub.ca. Now back to our program. <laughs>
Before we get to the new center, let's talk a bit about the state of legal scholarship in Canada. I mentioned that we recently had Asher Honickman on the podcast to talk about the ongoing debates between originalist and living tree understandings of the role of the courts and the application of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Let me ask you a three-part question. First, to what extent, in your view, is the living tree approach the dominant model for constitutional legal scholarship in Canada? Second, is it more contested in political science or essentially the same as one finds in law schools or across the country? And third, are there any signs that younger scholars are starting to challenge its dominance? Well, in the answer to the first question, you can distinguish between its in- the influence of living tree, the idea that the Constitution can be updated according to time as a living tree. You can distinguish between the views about that in the scholarly world, like in legal scholars, the, and, and the views, in, as you said, in political science departments, and the views in the, in the judiciary, let's say. And I would say that overall, the idea of a living tree, that the Constitution can be updated according to changing social mores and norms um, and moral, moral principles, that idea, which actually can be cashed out in different ways, right? It can be your moral norms as a judge, what you think is justifiable, a la Ronald Dworkin, or it can be what the change in the, a, a, a sort of societal change as a social fact that everyone notices, right? And those are different things. Um, and I don't think it was always clear to people that those are different strands of argument. And it's not clear to many people and many judges that it is still, unfortunately. But you start to see, I think what you started to see is a little more interest, even amongst the most um, diehard proponents of living tree of what kind of living tree proponent am I? And what is the living tree? And a lot of this was provoked by um, by heterodox scholarship, by uh, people like uh, Bradley Miller, who's now a judge, a justice on the Ontario Court of Appeal, who who showed that the original living tree metaphor was used in a kind of specific modern originalist way. It was not about discerning the original intent um, behind the meaning of persons in the, in this famous persons case about whether or not women could be uh, appointed to the Senate of Canada. Um, but it was about the original meaning of persons in the law at the time. And he showed that that was the living tree idea was actually deployed in a kind of what we call an original public meaning way. And I think that that essay was ignored, and it's an embarrassingly low SSRN download rate for how important and fundamental it was as a scholarly work for a long time. That is an absolute embarrassment to the legal profession in Canada, in my opinion. Um, but it's very quickly become much more, there's been a lot more downloads recently and a lot more interest in it and a lot more debates. And I think that's partly a function of younger scholars taking it up and challenging it. Overall, what we still have is, um, Purposivism, the idea that purposes, the original purposes of the Constitution matter for understanding its meaning. Um, And what's happened is people have become interested in deploying different ways of understanding purposes that lean towards different strands of living tree versus originalist. Or even, and now we have, we have uh, young conservative scholars who are conservative living tree theorists who are aggressively arguing for the incorporation of conservative moral principles into the Constitution. And I find it very amusing to see them debate some people who are living tree constitutionalists and watch um, them agree about methodology and disagree about outcomes and then see how their reaction on the account of some people 
some progressive living tree theorist is to say, oh, maybe there are some limits to living tree constitutionalism. Um, political scientists see this differently, right? So political scientists are interested in not just in like how we should, theories about how we should interpret the constitution, they're interested in to what extent ideology plays a role in actually determining outcomes, regardless of what courts say about their theory of constitutional interpretation, right? So as the methods debate, methods of constitutional interpretation debate heats up between legal scholars and political scientists will say that they've been tracking for a long time how, and trying to think for a long time about how ideology does influence judges of all stripes and that the living tree is itself um, a somewhat empirically useful way of thinking about how courts do update legal meaning according to political preferences and how they're influenced by that, but also how there are limits on that. And the limits come partly from the strategic environment courts find themselves in. Judges aren't just like, uh, aren't Hercules. They can't do whatever they want. They are limited um, by, they're limited to some extent, even by text, even those who think the text can be changed. Um, they're, and they're also limited, more importantly, for political scientists by the political environment the court finds itself in, who they're appointed by, what the parliament looks like that, that there's, uh, that is sitting at the time there, they are, um, what the parliament's ideology was that enacted the law they're looking at, things like that. Um, and there are young scholars, I've already said, I've already answered question theory, I think there are lots of young scholars, um, challenging, uh, the dominant living tree, progressive living tree ideology. As I said, both from the originalist, an originalist perspective and somewhat as a very new phenomenon that's very interesting from a conservative living tree perspective. Some listeners uh, to that final point will be familiar with the emergence of so-called common good constitutionalism that, as Jeff says, represents an effort on the part of conservatives, oftentimes social conservatives, to advance uh, a living tree model for jurisprudential thinking uh, with the goal of ultimately advancing conservative ends. Okay, Jeff, we've talked about your own research. We've talked about the state of uh, legal scholarship and analysis. We've talked about Robbie George. It's now time to get to the main topic I want to cover, which is the new Center for Constitutional Law and Legal Studies at UBC, which just launched in, in recent weeks for which you are the director. Why did you establish it what gap is it filling in the world of scholarship and ideas? Well, why I established it is very simple, and it relates to what we were talking about before, which is I, I just think that we need more heterodox, more conversations and debates and speakers um, who are interested in challenging um, and thinking about and enriching our understanding of fundamental constitutional principles and ideas and debates in this country, especially, right? We have had people who were living tree constitutionalists for a long time, but they didn't know what, they didn't know whether there were different strands of that or didn't think, they weren't pushed to think, this is not fair, right? They weren't pushed to think clearly about what that means, what living constitutionalism really is, what living tree constitutionalism is. And what I want the center to do is to push those kinds of conversations. I don't want it to be pushing one line saying that living tree constitutionalism is wrong or something like that, but that I wanted to do, what I wanted to do is to increase the kinds of conversations we have where people feel um, excited and interested in figuring out even what their own view is and sharpen that a little more. And what I've tried to do is reach across um, a whole broad swathe of scholars from all different kinds of perspectives at UBC, Vancouver, at Allard, the Allard Law School, to try to foster that. And, and I came in as a, 
Uh, I'm still a very novice assistant professor here and noticed that there's not a UBC Center for Constitutional Law at Allard Law School. And I thought, well, man, that needs to change. We need to have a law. We need to have a Center for Constitutional Law. They have a Center for Feminist Studies and a Center for Indigenous Law. And it seems those are important things and interesting things. Um, but it seems really important to have a Center for Constitutional Law. So I, uh, I pitched it to my colleagues here and was very, I experienced a lot of support from all the people from different points of view. And I'm really excited about it. I, I think that it's a, it's a, uh, it's something else for, it's one thing for me to propose this. It's another thing for people to be really supportive and to get and, and be on board with the idea and people from very different perspectives. And I think that we've, we've done a good job of reaching out to people from different perspectives, but I think that the people from different perspectives genuinely recognize that this is something we need in Canada, that we need more conversations about fundamental issues in constitutionalism from different perspectives. The, the center's mandate emphasizes, among other things, quote, the philosophy of law. What do you mean and why is it important? Well, the philosophy of law is itself a very technical subfield of philosophy, right? There are, and it's uh, interested in questions like, what is law? Is law positive? Is it separate from morality? Is it a thing that can be in, in what way, if, if so, or if not, in what way? Um, and it's an extremely important discipline for and subfield for thinking about questions about constitutionalism. And, um, and it's just important in its own right. It's an important fundamental philosophical area of thinking. Um, and I mean, just to illustrate how important it is, I mean, one of the best art, more articulate, um, scholars who, who, who wrote about what the living tree constitutional constitution will actually look like and wrote an argument for it in Canada and actually articulated what it means beyond just a metaphor. And what its philosophical grounding might be is Will Wallachow at McMaster, uh, who is a philosopher of law and wrote about the topic from a, it was a student of HLA Hart at Oxford, is one of the most famous philosophers of law. And, and he wrote about, um, and he wrote his argument for common law, living tree constitutionalism from a philosophy of law perspective, um, where the, his, his views on the philosophy of law don't completely determine his views on constitutionalism and living tree, but they do influence it and help sharpen it, I think. And, um, and I think it's a valuable discipline in its own right and something we should support, um, independently of its value to wider debates about constitutionalism and doctrine. But it's also just fundamentally important to other conversations, right? So when you look at the common good, common good versus originalist debate, I mean, it's got all kinds of things going on with philosophy of law questions. There's a school of originalism that argues that originalism is a variety of positivism, that when you're enforcing the original meaning of the constitution, you're ultimately enforcing um, the technical legal meaning as divorced from just the simple moral, moral principles and views and intentions of the framers or the people at the time, right? And then there are the common goods, some of the common good scholars like Adrian Vermeule are attacking that and using the natural law theory to say that no law itself is tied to moral principles so fundamentally that that vision of originalist constitutionalism that vision of positivism is wrong. You know, and wherever you, wherever you come out in that debate, it engages fundamental philosophy of law ideas in a way that's really exciting, interesting. And, um, and it's an area where philosophers of law, who are very sharp generally, help us think more clearly about these things. You've established a broad and diverse group of research associates at the center, including popular hub contributors, Howard Anglin, Bed Woodfin, and Brian Bird. 
What do you hope to achieve with such a stellar network of adjacent scholars? Well, I, I hope that they um, will participate in future events and we can bring them into conversation with people who maybe um, maybe haven't uh, engaged with them enough, you know, um, or haven't been, they're not on. My guess is that, here's my real hunch, Sean, is that a lot of folks in the academy maybe haven't heard of Howard Anglin or or really read his work or or heard of Ben Woodfinden and read his read his stuff. Maybe I'm, I'm guessing that's increasingly changing as Ben becomes more prolific, right? But and I actually know that the political science subsection knows in Canada knows a lot about Ben. But some of these voices or Brian Bird's voice too in the legal academy, you know, I want their voices to be put into I want them to be put into the ears of certain people who maybe haven't been, they, who maybe haven't heard them before or really, or really, um, taken them seriously enough. And, um, and I think that, as I said, I, I, as I was trying to, I'm trying to say is that I don't think that's from ill will necessarily, but maybe just from the lack of opportunity. And maybe this having a network that brings people, um, from a variety of points of view together, um, helps, uh, helps us hear each other better and hear and, and listen across these different perspectives and gaps, you know? As you talk, Jeff, implicitly in your comments is a, a reflection of the inspiration of Professor George and the work that he's done to bring diverse and, and heterodox voices together in a constructive conversation, which leads me to my final question. What has been the reaction so far to the launch of the new center? I would say overwhelmingly positive in that I've received notes from all different kinds of people, notes from lawyers uh, who who are just excited at the idea. We had a note from one recent graduate of Allard who who said he's just so excited about us having these conversations, um, and that uh, and that he was uh, he's been worried about the state of the discipline and and what people are willing to say or not willing to say. Um, in some, even in some of his classes and that he sees the center as, as exciting, an exciting, um, chance to fight back against that and have, have some more open conversations and, and invite professors to do what they were supposed to do, what they've always been supposed to do, which is to be, to speak freely and openly and, and, um, and intelligently, um, and more intelligently for being free, for being able to speak more freely about different kinds of issues and challenge, um, challenge norms and help us think about what we even mean by some of the things that we're all we all say we're committed to um and i would say that uh that that is my that is my big hope and it's definitely inspired by robbie it's also inspired by another mentor of mine michael mcconnell at um who, who ran the center for constitutional law uh sorry it's called their their center is called the the uh, constitutional law center at stanford law school i was a fellow there briefly and um I have a huge respect for Professor McConnell, and I'm also really inspired by him. And he's got a similar approach to this, bringing different voices together. Um, you know, I, I remember being at that seminars he ran that had an unbelievable gambit of different speakers. And that kind of thing is productive, and it makes everybody, it makes everybody up their game. Well, the center is called the Center for Constitutional Law and Legal Studies at UBC. Jeffrey Siglet, we wish you and the group there uh, the best of luck as your work gets off the ground. In the meantime, I want to thank you for joining us for what's been an enlightening conversation at Hub Dialogues. Thanks very much, Sean. I'm very honored to have this conversation. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.